everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm good, George. Good, George. How are you? Um, I'm pretty good. Yeah, it's been... Uh, I feel like every at the start of every podcast I start it with a it's been a long day, but it really has been a long day. Um, it's been yeah, I've been having some internet issues, but they seem to have, have disappeared now, so that's that's positive. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to speak to you. Last time we spoke, it wasn't it wasn't recorded, but I wish I had recorded it because it was such a great conversation. So just to excited to speak with you. Yeah, no, it's, it's always good to catch up. I like yourself I had quite a long busy day at work today but was really looking forward to catching up with you because I know like you said the last time we spoke I think we ended up speaking for for several hours yeah. and it probably would have gone on an awful lot longer um but yeah no it's always good to have a catch up exactly exactly and you kind of touched on it uh, a little bit there with your, your long day at work um obviously I know about your job and everything from when we last spoke, but for the people who don't, can you tell us a little bit about your your background and what it is you do for your day job, et cetera? Yeah, so um, I'm actually uh, an occupational therapist by background. Um, I trained a long, long time ago. Um, so I basically I moved to England when I was 18 because as you could probably tell from my accent, I'm not from these parts. Uh, but yeah, I moved, moved to England when I was 18, went to university, trained as an occupational therapist um really didn't really have an idea about the mental health side of things until I went to uni and didn't realize that OTs could work in those environments um and happened to have a couple of placements in mental health settings and just fell in love with it and thought that's what I want to do so um I ended up moving to to Norwich got a job there in a secure hospital um, and spent about eight years in that hospital um, it was a combination of secure adult services um, and then it transitioned into a, a secure um, children's hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I then left there for a while and went and was working in children's homes, um, secure schools, those types of environments, and then went on to manage an OT department in a private mental health hospital. Uh, but more recently, so about a year ago, um, we moved from Norwich up to the northeast, and I now manage a local NHS mental health team in the Sunderland area. Um, so that's my my sort of background in terms of um, like the purely sort of mental health side of things. Um, but yeah, I imagine we'll talk a little bit more about the the sport and fitness side of things going forward. Yeah, yeah. I guess this is um, you know not something we really often talk about. Like I feel like some people might not know what an occupational therapist is. Um, it's something that I, I think you told me what it what it was when we had our first conversation. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was you, you do just kind of before we get into the, the full swing of things about what is an OT? Yeah, so um, occupational therapists traditionally work in physical health settings. Um, and I always like to think like their calling cards are anywhere you see grab rails, um, outside people's homes, 
um that was i know my sort of first experience of placements was going out to people's homes who'd maybe through illness or disability had mobility issues um, and you would provide them with equipment and adaptations basically to make their life easier to support them to be as independent as they possibly can be now the mental health side of things is, is slightly different so although ultimately you're supporting people to be as independent as you possibly can be um it's it's coming at things from a different angle we, we support people a lot around routine structure but ultimately it's what we would refer to as meaningful occupation now when we say occupation we don't mean job we mean um, any meaningful activity. So um, that could be going to work. It could be taking part in hobbies and interests, going to the gym, for example. Um, but it could also be like even like smaller tasks, like being able to um, tend to your personal hygiene from a physical health side of things, be, being able to maybe get on and off the toilet, being able to, to wash yourself and make meals, those types of things. Um, but in the sentence that I was working in, it was very much around supporting people to maintain a, a routine. Um, and one of the key things that happens with, with individuals who, who struggle with, with their mental health, um, it's that motivation can just be absolutely drained out of you. Um, and we would support people to improve what we would call their motivation for occupation. Um, but we also use therapeutic activity as a means of improving people's mood. Um, mm -hmm. So... I suppose psychologists would refer to it as behavioral activation, but it's one of those fundamental principles of occupational therapy that if you do something that's meaningful and that's enjoyable, it can have a huge impact um, upon your mental health. And I know on, on the pod, you've talked a lot about people going to the gym, for example, and I know it can be maybe a, like a, a fine line sometimes, but doing those things, like supporting people to engage in, in exercise and, and therapeutic activity can have a huge impact on their, on their mental health. Um, so yeah, that's generally what, what we do. Yeah, and so it, you touched on a few things there, and I think I just want to ask you a couple more, or maybe just one more question. Um, I think the the idea of pushing someone for to to be more motivated and to um, yeah do more in the, in exercise or in anything, uh, I think often that at least for me it leaves like a and i know it's not what you're referring to which is why i'm asking it leaves like a sour taste in my mouth because motivation to me has always been what you see like in the fitness community and bodybuilding things where it's just like basically you quote unquote stop being a pussy and just do it anyway and that's obviously not what you're saying um so what what do you mean like how how, how would you motivate someone so i think you've actually touched on a really good point because there are I suppose there are two ways that I would look at it in my professional practice and when I was working as an OT in those environments. So say, for example, we would have someone who's maybe admitted to the hospital um, and we're trying to support them to have a bit more of a routine. Now, I could go to their, their bedroom door and I could knock on their door and I could say, George, get up, get up, get up, get up. And eventually you'll get up and um, just to sort of get me to shut up. And then I'd be saying, right, you need to have some breakfast, you need to have some breakfast. Uh, you need to tend your personal hygiene and I could just hassle you in, in that way and eventually we'd get through the day where you've probably done a lot of different things but like you say it'll have left a bad taste in your mouth you won't have done it because you wanted to do it you'll have done it because you just wanted me to shut up but the approach that I would have taken would have been I would have tried to find out what activity it is that, that someone enjoys or has an interest in or is willing to explore um, and I used to use exercise quite a bit and there was, I'll give you an example. There was a lady I was working with who, she came into the hospital. She was, she was really unwell. 
and she was really struggling with with depression um and she had mentioned that she used to enjoy exercise but her motivation to do it had, had completely gone um so the staff were on the board and they would be trying to sort of get her up and maintain this routine by doing as i've described you know George, get up, George, get up. Um, and I said, right, come on, we'll go out and we'll do the couch to 5K. Um, so I, I explained what, what that entailed and she doubted that she'd be able to do it. But we eventually got to the point where, where she agreed to come out the door. Now, in order to get out the door, she had to get up out of her room. She had to lay pots or clean clothes on. Um, she had to eat a little bit of breakfast. She had a cup of coffee. Um, and then we went out, we, we did the, the sort of exercise session that lasted say, like 30 minutes and it was all like really low intensity. But then when she came back, she's thinking, right, well, now I'm all sweaty. I'm going to have to go and sort of tend to personal hygiene, get into clean clothes, maybe then have a snack. Um, and all of those things that we were trying to achieve fell into place because we had one meaningful activity. Um, and she was then in a far better place than just having someone hassling her. Um, and that's why I think occupational therapists are are different from from other professionals and, and sort of health professionals because we focus on what the meaningful occupation is, what the meaningful activity is. Um, you hear a lot about people being like um, medically fit for discharge from hospital, and that's just a case of right. You know your your observations are you know they're at a level where you no longer need to be in hospital, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily better. And it'll be the occupational therapists will be the ones saying, well, can this person look after themselves if they go home? Can they make their meals? Can they, um, they can they go to the toilet? Can they get up and down the stairs? Um, so in, in physical health hospitals, you hear stories, a lot of the OTs stopping people getting discharged on a Friday um, because they're not 100 percent sure that, that the person's going to be OK over the over the weekend. Um, I don't know if you can hear that, but someone's just flushed the toilet outside my room. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on because that's that's distracting. But thank you, Mark. And yeah, I think I think the, the role of the OT is really important. And I think the fact that um I'll leave the, the toilet flushing in. You can you can understand. <laughs> Read into um, it what you want. <laughs> <laughs> um anyway, okay, I'll move on because that's embarrassing and distracting me. Um thank you, Mark, for, for going into that. Um we we kind of got off topic anyway, so it's probably a good thing that the, the toilet was flushed. Um I want to talk today, and one of the main reasons why I got you on is because of your role with Willow Grove Counseling, consulting, not counseling, consulting. Willow Grove Consulting. Um, can you tell people what it is um, and why you started? So basically, um, I provide mental health support to elite athletes, coaches, and and sporting organisations. Um, generally, I, I always had this idea that at some point I would love to, to like work for Manchester United and that would come out from my childhood I wanted to play for Manchester United but I couldn't play football um, and I always thought I'll, I'll have to try and figure out a way I can do it and then I became an OT um, and I always had this idea about mental health support in, in sporting environments but never really sort of explored it a great deal from time to time I would like search on different club websites and see if there was anything there and, and generally there wasn't but it was it, like I say it was an idea and I didn't really ever do anything with it and then probably about four or five years ago I saw an interview with an international rugby player who he'd had a, a spate of knee and ankle injuries that went on for about two years and he got interviewed and he was he was describing his experience of, of that period when he was injured 
and he said that he would he got to the point where he would as part of his rehab he would get up in the morning he would have some breakfast he would do some like upper body weights then his partner would go to work and then he would sort of just have to hang around the house all day he would do some more weights in the afternoon and then he described that he would just have to wait until she came home and he said something along the lines of it was very depressing now he said it in a bit of a like a throwaway fashion. He didn't say it in the sense that he'd been diagnosed with anything. Um, and I just thought, oh, what he's describing is actually quite similar to the, the patients that I was working with in, in the secure hospitals. Um, they were describing similar sort of experiences where they were basically picked up from their lives because they were unwell and they were like plopped into, into a hospital. Um, and they weren't able to do the things that, that they enjoyed doing normally. Their normal routine was was completely gone. The social networks that they had were, were gone. And it was the same with this rugby player. He went from spending pretty much you know, four or five days a week with his, his teammates, with his coaches, to all of a sudden he's at home. He's not playing rugby. Um, and it's that like loss of, of identity as such, even though it was it was a temporary measure. I think there's always been there's always been um, a good insight into the fact when players, when they retire or when their career ends through injury, people know, well, that's a significant um, sort of milestone in their life. And it's obvious that they might need some support. But for me, it just seemed that, oh, there doesn't seem to be anything in place um, with athletes in, in that situation. So um, I, I put together what I ended up calling the, the injured athlete pathway. And it was this idea that when, when athletes, when they do experience a serious injury, that it should basically trigger um, like a, a process or a protocol where you try and mitigate all of the those things that I've described in terms of the loss of identity, the, the loss of routine, because those are all of the things that can lead to a decline in someone's mental health. Um, and it was one of those things, I, I put it together, but again, life gets in the way and getting married and having kids and moving jobs and stuff. Um, and then one day, purely by chance, I happened to bump into to two people. Um, and I'm, I'm not one, I'm, I'm not a great believer in, in deities or, or fate or anything like that. But on this particular day, I spoke to two people about um, this idea. One of them happened to work in elite sport previously as a, as a chairman um, of an elite football club. And I told him about this idea and he said, yeah, you need to crack on because that type of support you're describing isn't really there. And the other person I spoke to happened to be the mother of a Premier League footballer who'd had a really similar experience in terms of, um, of injuries. Um, and she was describing that he, he, he was coming through the academy and he got a bad injury. And um, she was phoned and told, you need to come to the hospital. He's, he's had an injury. Um, and she went and um, the, it was a, a knee injury got. And once everything was sort of stable and he was able to go home, she took him home. And then she described that they didn't hear from the club for two weeks, um, not a phone call, not a text message, an email, nothing, um, until they said, right, you need to get him to such and such a hospital to have surgery. Um, and he had access to like the best surgeons in, in the country. Um, but after that, he didn't hear from the club for three months. Again, not a phone call, not a text message, not an email. Um, why, not why, do you think, why do you think that is? Because I, like, I, feel, I feel like it's... But my instinct is that they're just arseholes. But maybe it's more comp. I don't know. What do you What do you think? Is it more complex than that? I I, I don't know. I, I think there's this sort of view within elite sports and particularly within football that athletes are assets, and they need to be 
the need to be fit and ready to, to sort of engage in whatever the whether it's training or whether it's it's matches or competitions. Um, otherwise, they're not really on the radar of, of those coaches. Um, I know that's that's just just my opinion. And I think it's important to reflect that there have been some clubs and organisations that I've worked with who who have highlighted this and they have their own processes and, uh, and protocols in, in place. Um, but it was after those two discussions that I thought, right, let's let's see if I can sort of do something with this. So um, I, I put together some information and I um, I basically reached out to the, the 92 league clubs. So that was like the top four tiers in, in English football. Um, and I sent the information to them through lots of different like ways sometimes you can get like the email address of the club doctor sometimes you were just having to do it through um like a contact form on the website but um i wasn't i didn't send it as a like a, a job application i just said i've got this idea i've got this protocol do you want to have a look if you think it's rubbish you can tell me but it, it might be quite helpful um and i had little to no response from those clubs and then i reached out to um, so rugby clubs and, and other sporting organisations and, and clubs back in Ireland as well and again had a, a similar response where you know if I did get a response it was you know don't call us we'll call you um, and at that point then I, I managed just, to make sorry, sorry sorry to put sorry to put in again but that just that just see it seems again what my question is why do you think that was the response because it see it seems like you're handing it on a plate to them to a point you're saying like this is an issue it's a real issue, and I've I've already, I've done all the I've done all the work for you. Um, why do you think no one would take that on? I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, one of the key things that I've seen was, I think there's everyone wants to work in sport. Um, like every everyone wants to you know be at whether it's Manchester United, um, or or international. Everyone wants the tracksuit. Um, and the people who do get into those environments sometimes can be quite protective. That's probably the, the most diplomatic way of putting it. And I think there were times where I felt I was maybe stepping on people's toes, um, which from my perspective was a bit odd because I didn't think there was anyone really out there. I'm not aware of another occupational therapist on the planet who's saying, oh, look at this. Mm. Um, I've got like an OT intervention for sport. Um, I, I think that that was part of it. Um, I think there were other clubs and organisations who felt that they had it under control. Um, the I've had discussions with like heads of player welfare at elite clubs who've said, oh, we've got this under control. We've got a sports psychologist. Um, now, I have nothing against sports psychologists. I, I work really closely with a number of sports psychologists. I refer my, some of my clients on to sports psychologists. Um, but there are some sports psychologists who... Are trained from a clinical perspective as well um maybe maybe trained in something like cognitive behavioral therapy but it's not consistent it's you can't guarantee that somebody's a sports psychologist would be able to support people with things like depression and anxiety um but yeah some of the clubs go oh yeah well we, we've got that un, under control and um, yeah, i suppose that, but, that one although it's still it's obviously still wrong that they're just assuming they've got it sorted because they've, they've got someone um but that one at least makes some kind of logical sense to me. Yeah. Like they, they think they understand, but it's so frustrating when when politics and kind of egos, and it is just human nature, I suppose, but it's so frustrating when someone doesn't want it to happen because they're afraid that it'll affect their stature or something. That's yeah. and I think I don't think that I don't, like, I don't think that mentality breeds success. Like I, I can I can definitely say 
if I'm being honest, that there are there are times where you know I'll be working on projects. I've been doing, in, especially in the past, I've been working on projects and I've had an opportunity to bring someone else in, and I've been scared about it because I've been like, oh, what if they're better than me? And, and yeah, I've done that as well. Yeah, I think it's really normal. Um, but I think actually, the more I've started saying yeah i know a person let's get them involved as well let's get them involved as well is that actually breeds more success because then you get like one you get known to the person who knows people that like, knows these people um, and two you end up developing a team and, and everything that you're working on is better because you're bringing all these other people in um, and it doesn't diminish you because you know you're still you're still you're, you have your own unique stuff but yeah sorry i kind of i put it in there but i just think that's it's sad that that's something that, that plays a role in in this yeah, and it's it's a weird one because it it differs across different sports. That's what I found as well. Some some sports are a lot more receptive. Um, and one of the things that I found that's really interesting is the difference in terms of of gender. So, male sports are very very difficult to to sort of like even get access to. Um, whereas with female sports, um, and I. The, some of the people that I've spoken with and, and the, the access that you can get to some of these athletes, even through things just like social media or LinkedIn. Um, it's, it's amazing it, that the female sports are just so more, so much more like receptive of these, these ideas. Um, I think another thing though, that's worth touching upon is um, I, I got chatting to someone who was, he was an academy coach um, at a, a Premier League football club um, previously. And I was just having a discussion about um, my sort of struggles to, to sort of knock the door down as such to, to get in touch with the, these clubs, these athletes, these coaches. And he said, there's two things. He said, one, he said, if I were to walk into a room, people would literally say, who the fuck are you? Um, and, and, and he meant it in a really kind way. And he had a point because I come from a very strong non-sporting background Um I, I don't have any experience like you name a sport I'm atrocious at it um, and, and that's where I've been like throughout my, my childhood and, and, and adult life uh, so th- that was one thing but the other thing that he said was I'm effectively going to these clubs and I'm saying have you got adequate mental health support structures in place and he said that's a really dangerous question that I'm asking because if they say no then they're sort of yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're leaving they themselves quite vulnerable. Mm. Um, and then there's, and he, he was explaining that there's a number of different reasons why they're vulnerable. One, they might think, oh, there, there might be a cost implication to this. Um, and although there's an awful lot of money in, for example, like the Premier League, as you work your way down like the, the footballing pyramid or you look at other sports, there isn't that, like the finances just, just aren't there. Um, but he then he said the other thing from purely from like a welfare perspective, um, if, if you're saying, no, we don't have support in place, then you're admitting that your athletes aren't being looked after. So sometimes it's just easier to engage in a bit of willful blindness. Um, you know, put your fingers in your ears, cover your eyes and, and, and just hope that, that I go away. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting couple of years in terms of trying to access these clubs. And like I said, some have been really, really, a small number have been really, really receptive. And there's a few clubs that I'm, I'm going to be coming on board with. So we're hoping to announce over the next few months a number of clubs across the UK and Ireland who we're going to be providing support for. Um, and that's in, going to be a combination. Of, sorry, go sorry. ahead. 
Well, I was just going to say, in regards to uh, approaching these clubs, then, because you said you know you, you had these issues of the you know who the fuck are you, and also this idea of um, yeah, this asking that dangerous question. Have you learned anything along the way of like a different way to approach it? Uh, I'm just thinking, you know, if there's anyone listening who's also trying to get in with clubs and stuff, it might be a, a tip. I think the key thing for me was you have to just acknowledge the fact that you might send a thousand emails and not get a response. Yeah. Um, and I took it really personally at the start. So I was I was creating these databases of of all of the clubs, all the contacts, and um, how I contacted people, um, and the information that I was sending across. Um, and then you just weren't getting replies and you'd constantly be checking your emails and you're just thinking, God, that's so much work I've, I've pumped into this. Um, and then sometimes you would get a reply that would say, oh no, we have this under control. Um, and sometimes you would get replies saying, oh, we have this under control. And you know for a fact, because you've spoken with some of the athletes at that organization, that they really don't have it under control. And that was quite concerning. Um, but the key thing for me was just, just keep going. Um, using things like LinkedIn um, has been absolutely amazing because you, you can actually access people that you would have normally have like no access to whatsoever. Mm. Um, and I'm firmly of the opinion that, you know, you don't ask, you don't get. Um, so sometimes you have to be a little bit cheeky and just say, you know, I'm, I'm putting myself out there. Um, and if you can get past the fact that there will be people who will say no, there will be people who ignore you, but there will also be someone. And it only takes one person to say, oh yeah, Let's have a look at this. Let, yeah. Let's have a discussion. Uh, I think I think with that, I think that because I've I've been trying to be more like that with with stuff with my minds and things, and I think uh, I think one, it's it does feel cheeky, but I think I I try to look at it instead of of having value of myself and value of my ideas. And saying, you know, I'm I'm going to be straight with you, like you know, I don't actually put this, but you know, I'm being straight with these people and saying what what I think and what I want and what I want to do, because I value the fact that I know my shit and I know what I, I know, like I can do this. Yeah. Um. And I think ha- I think ha- I think it's a it's a trait of the self respect that you know that your idea is brilliant, that you can just be like like you want to do this like we should do this or you know you're you're not doing this i've got this answer um, and i think it can feel cheeky but i think really you just you're just being honest you're saying like this is good i've worked hard on this i really know my stuff and i've I'm given you the opportunity to use it um, yeah, i think yeah. that's a that's a really good thing i think it's something within like british and irish culture that people are quite reserved um, mm. and people don't like like bigging themselves up um, and one of the things that really helped me with with this whole sort of idea with this private practice, um, one of my really good friends, um, Will, he's he's from America, um, and he he's he's very very American, and he's. he's I just was a, just about to say <laughs> we need to learn from the Americans. So it's yeah. good you got your friend. And um, he's like, yeah, you just have to just keep asking, just put yourself out there. And he was explaining that like in his experience growing up in america like he's had loads of different business ideas he said 99 percent of them fail but they go into it knowing that you're more likely to fail than succeed but one one of them will eventually work um and it was all of those things and just approaching people and and not worrying about what people are going to say which is it's a mad thing to sort of wrap your head around 
But if you just acknowledge the fact that there will be lots of people who don't really care what you say, and then you just say, right, well, I'll just move on onto the next one. And like, there's there's no shortage of um, sporting organisations, athletes, clubs, all these different things. You know, you could you're never going to run out of people to to keep approaching and and, and keep asking. Um, and then I suppose the other thing is like getting feedback. Um, so the the chap I, I mentioned earlier who worked in an academy for for years in the Premier League, um, when I sent some of my information across to him, he was like, oh yeah, it, it's already good, but it's not like catchy enough. It's it's not. You need something that someone's going to look at and they're going to say, yep, yeah, yeah, we we need you on on board, um, and that's it. Because I think unless you're in uh, sort of elite sport or or in sort of high end business, like most industries, we don't re- we don't routinely give or or take um feedback um and sometimes we're like really we don't want to offend people and we sort of beat around the bush a little bit but if you think of if you've seen any of those um the the documentary series um i think of like like the all blacks uh that one in particular where like they're people they're, they're calling one another out left right and center but they're doing it in a really sort of like sensitive way and it's just part and parcel of that of that environment of that industry um, there's, a, so there's, a really, there's a really good book by um, I can't remember his name now. Um, he was a he was a, a, ten, a table tennis player for for England, and he wrote the book Bounce, and he wrote, wrote another book called Black Box Thinking. And in that, he talks about this idea, um, and he, he the, the the kind of analogy he uses in the like aviation, so in like helicopters and planes. Um, we they have like a thing in, called a black box which records everything that's going on um, and every time a plane has crashed or a helicopter has crashed they've um, recorded this black box which is basically indestructible and then they look at exactly what happened so they can find out what was wrong and then fix it in the future and that's why yeah. um, flight is one of the safest methods of travel is because every time there's a failure they meticulously look at it and and they fix it. And he says, but in in every other um, in every other phase of life, we're so afraid of failure, and we just try and ignore it or try and pretend it didn't happen because we're so scared that it says that we're a failure. But instead, what we yeah. should do is he calls it black box thinking, where you look at what the failure was and figure out like what you could do different. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that's. I suppose to a smaller extent, that's what I've tried to do with this is get feedback from as many different people. Um, and that was it as well. Actually sending the, the resources that I've created to people and said, can you have a look at this and just give me some feedback on it? So I'm not, mm-hmm. I, there was times where I was approaching people saying like, I'd really like to work with your organization. Um, but there was other times where it was like, I'm going to be really cheeky, but could you, could you have a look at this? And you'd be surprised that like the amount of, when you approach individuals, the amount of them that will say, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll have a look and it's helpful or you should change this or you should change that. Um, and people, people are remarkably kind with their time um, in, in that respect. So I would say if, if there's anyone who is listening, who's trying to do something similar um, or has an idea of a business or something that they want to do, like just go for it. Put like put yourself out there. And um, if you look at if you look around and you see people who we view as successful in inverted commas, like you don't get successful just having an idea and not doing anything with it. You have to put yourself out there. Even if you go for a job interview, um, like you have to like to prove that 
you're the best person for the job and it's something people find really really hard um but sometimes you have to just throw yourself out there yeah i think um i think having something that you you were talking about like the kind of meaningful um practices or meaningful occupations i think having something that's meaningful to you and then pursuing it to you know to a, a, a larger goal i think is such a, a, a positive influence on your mental health because one it's like you're know, like you said you, you kind of have that motivation to, to keep going because you're enjoying what you do and you think it's meaningful um, and two it it forces you to face those little failures and those little um, moments of cocking up and, and just doing things wrong and it makes you realize that you know i think i think as well the the more my mind has been growing and the, the more kind of amazing people like yourself and, and other people that I, I work with and um, that I speak to, the more I realize that we're all just people, that like we all just, we cock up and fuck up all the time. And that's completely normal. Um, and I used to get so on top of myself because I thought I was the only person that messed up as much as I, as I do. But I realized that everyone does it and it's so normal. And I think without my mind, it, never, like, it would have taken me so much longer to realize that. Yeah, I think that's the same with me where like I back in what year would it have been? 2017, um, I got made redundant. Um, and it, it sort of came out of the blue and the hospital I was working in closed and there was over a hundred of us. Um, but I went from being in a, a really stable, secure job to uh, oh dear, my wife's pregnant, it's a month before Christmas, I've just bought a house, um, and I need to find a job. Um and there was there was all these sort of safe options that I could have taken. And then I just thought, I'm just going to go for it. And I went for a job that was like sort of a few sort of steps up the ladder. Um, and then I just, I spent the next few weeks preparing for the interview and really like learning how to like market myself um, and how to like step outside my comfort zone in terms of saying, this is actually what I do on a day-to-day basis. And I'm actually quite good at it as opposed to being quite Irish and, and reserved about the whole thing. Um, and it's something with like the staff that I manage within the NHS. Um, I, I encourage a lot of them to like, you know, go on, look at like jobs with like higher pay bandings um, and, and don't don't just settle for, for what, what you have. It's one of those, some people are quite happy and comfortable in, in what they do, but other people, they really want to push. And sometimes you just need to give them a little bit of a nudge. Um, and I think through the pandemic we've seen a lot more people do it like like what you're doing with the podcast and and there's lots of other organizations and groups and things that have been set up where people have just said yeah i'm just going to put myself out there um and you know what's the worst that can happen um the worst that can happen is that you know someone might just ignore you or, or might not get a, you might not get a like or, or a subscription or something like that but if it goes well you can like potentially like change your own life, change other people's lives, those those types of things. So yeah, just go for it. Amazingly put, fantastically put. Um, I think yeah, I'll kind of bring us back to our work. So I kind of put it in when you were explaining about um, Willow Grove Consulting, and I kind of got on this huge tangent, which has been brilliant. Um, let's. I kind of want to go back to to Willow Grove. What what you you've kind of touched on. Um, partly what it is you do what kind of support do you actually do you give to people and, and what are you doing currently with Willow Grove so I suppose it's I, I think of splitting it into two one side of it is like the direct one-to-one work with athletes and then the other side is like working with with clubs and wider organizations so with with the athletes um I, I can support people with 
things like anxiety and depression. Now, I'm, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist, um, but the way I like to explain it to people is if you went to your GP um, and you said, I'm, I'm struggling with, with low mood or, or with anxiety, um, the GP is sort of your first protocol. They would call that primary care. Um, if the GP felt it's a little bit more complex, you would come to a service like where I work in the NHS, uh, and I, those services are full of nurses and occupational therapists. Um, now, there are doctors and there are psychologists there, but you have to go through like a, a number of other steps to, to get to that point. Um, so within my NHS role, we our, our staff support people with, um, we would call it like guided self-help in terms of anxiety and depression. I like to think of it like some people can go to the gym by themselves and get really good results, but other people might need a personal trainer. So I like to think of my staff as personal trainers for your mental health. And so things like anxiety and depression, like low self-esteem, and a lot of it is about guiding people through a range of different resources, um, basic psychoeducation, supporting people to understand the difficulties they might be having. And um, we, we do a lot of work around formulation. Um, and formulation is basically where, ultimately human beings, we are the, the sum total of all of our experiences. Um, like you don't just, you're not just George and you're just there, um, like plucked out of thin air. It's George that like everything that's happened throughout your life has led you to sort of here and now and, and, and who you are. So formulation is about trying to understand that um, and, and trying to get your head around why you may be um, experiencing, whether it's mental health difficulties or equally like sort of positive things. You talk a lot about, we talk a lot about um, like protective factors um, things like family, friends, um, those types of things. Um, but the other thing that I do a lot is, and this is probably the most common thing with athletes, sometimes it's just about having that safe space to, to have discussions about things that are difficult. Um, and I've got a lot of clients who I work with at the minute who will come and they'll, they'll basically say, this is what I'm feeling. And I help them make sense of it. So it may be that what they're describing is maybe like a low level anxiety. It may be that they're experiencing low mood. Um, and it may be that that's, low mood in the context of, of normal range of human emotions and this is the thing that that's really really important there's and I, you've touched on it in a lot of the the podcasts before about this idea that you're either well or not well and it's very much a continuum um and to sort of paraphrase a, a, a gp i once worked with he said there are two kinds of people in the world those with mental health problems and liars um and generally we we all have difficulties with our mental health at some point um, and sometimes it might be for a few days, uh, but it can go to the sort of other extreme where people have serious and enduring mental health problems. Um, but like you say, sometimes it's a bit me supporting people to sort of make sense of those things. Um, I also do a lot of work in terms of people will come to me, athletes will come to me and they'll, they'll say that they're, they're struggling with anxiety. And then we'll try and ascertain, is that like a performance related anxiety um, or is it more of a sort of mental health side of things? I, I worked with an athlete once who, said that they, they would train really, really well um, and they'd be, they'd be picked for the team. And then on match day, everything just crumbled um, and they were really concerned that they, they had a, a serious mental health problem. Uh, but through, um, through some discussions and a bit of formulation, we were able to sort of say that this looked more like a performance anxiety related issue. And we were able to signpost on to um, so Keith Sloan's one of the um, sports psychologists I work with. Uh, we were able to... Um, refer that client on there and go down the sort of performance side of things because I think that's one of the things that I'm very sort of boundaried about I'm not a sports psychologist 
I don't know anything about sports psychology and I, I don't um, try and make out like I do. And it's about working within your, your competencies as well. There are times where I've um, done like consultations with individuals and I felt this is a really serious issue and you need maybe crisis intervention. Um, so there's times where I've supported people to find out who the local um, sort of NHS or emergency um, sort of response service would be in that local area. Um, but equally, there's times where we've completed formulations with individuals and we find out maybe there's an underlying issue, for example, um, bereavement. So we've signposted on to like local bereavement services as well, because again, that's the danger that you could very easily find yourself in a situation where you're trying to offer support that you're not actually qualified to, to provide. Um, so that's sort of the, the one-to-one side of it with athletes in terms of clubs. Um, just, before, just before you move on to clubs, I just yeah. wanted to, to touch on, um, I think that's a really good thing you spoke about. And like you said, rightly, we, we, I've spoken quite a few times about the, the continuum of mental health and, um, I, I can't remember who it was. I, um, I've watched like a video of someone talking about this and saying how, you know, I think they were like a clinical psychologist or like a psychiatrist or someone. Um, and they said that, you know, the majority of the people who came to their practice with, um, anxiety and depression, they didn't actually have anxiety and depression. Their life was just shit at the time. Yeah. And, and that, and that's like, and I, I'm not trying to, say that you know anxiety and depression is a bad thing or that with you know people shouldn't be diagnosed with it or whatever um but i think sometimes when we're so quick to say oh it's just a mental is that you've got a mental health issue like anxiety and depression i think people can um i think there's there's a danger that people can give up and that's that's what happened with with me i think and i think you know for it for oh uh, yeah so I know it's so complex with the people. I'm trying to be really careful with my words here. Um, but I think you know, sometimes it's worth trying out that may, maybe it's just the way that you're living and the way that things are for you at the moment is, is just like not working and things are just shit. And actually, if you, if you make some changes, you'll start feeling better. And that's definitely not the way with everyone. I mean, if you are worried, do go see a doctor and, and, you know, and seek help. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you should give up because oh it's just your brain's just broken or you know whatever i think some people feel that way um yeah i don't know what you what you think about that but i, I just I you know like... i i agree totally and if, if i go back to the work that i do within the nhs we will have clients who will be referred to us for assessment because maybe their gp feels that they need some additional support and as part of the assessment process it would be very similar to what i would do with, with athletes try and gather as much information about about the individual about their their circumstances um, and sometimes it can be that their their circumstances are, are pretty horrible um we find a lot so look the, the nhs team that i that i manage um it's based in sunderland um, and there's really high levels of deprivation in the area um, the vast majority of clients will come from sort of the lower end of the socioeconomic sort of spectrum. Um, and it's, it's something that this phrase, you know, mental health doesn't discriminate. You know, there's an element of truth to that in that mental illness can impact everyone, but disproportionately it impacts people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. It, it, uh, it, it's, there's a higher prevalence among um, uh, like ethnic minorities, um, LGBT community, for example. So a lot of those different groups who are, I suppose they're bombarded with far more life stressors 
Um, and, and like I say, when you, when you look at the, the demographic of the people who, who come into these clinics, um, poverty is one of those things that is a significant contributory factor. Um, and I think it can be quite convenient for government to say, oh, mental illness doesn't discriminate, but it, it really, really does. Now, I think it's really important to, to just add on to that, that anyone can be impacted by mental illness and it can be caused by so many different factors. Um, up to and including sometimes mental illness just manifests um, and it can be quite difficult to pinpoint it um, but like you said there, there are times where people are in really different difficult circumstances um, and one of the things that people might not be aware of is within the services that I work in with the NHS we work with a huge amount of third sector and charity organizations who support people to change their circumstances um, for example, being able to access um, benefits, because if you, I don't know if you've ever seen a PIP form, um, it's like 50 pages long, um, like the information that, that they just expect that people can, can get together. And there's a huge obligation on the individual to go and gather it, like information and evidence from all these different services that they're accessing. And it's maybe it's the cynic in me, but it's almost like the government are trying to make it difficult for people to have enough money to survive upon. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just it's just one of those things that we, when you do a formulation, you do look at people's circumstances, and sometimes it's it's like people are in jobs that they absolutely hate, or they're um, maybe they they've gone to university because there was an expectation that they would go to university, um, and I suppose we've touched upon it earlier. I think we're not selfish enough um, in terms of British people, Irish people. We we do what's expected. We do what we're we're sort of seen, uh, we're expected to be doing. It's, I always think of um, that TV program, Keeping Up Appearances with um, Mrs. Bouquet. And there's this idea that like, you know, we, we do things because the neighbors or the, the family expect us to, to do things or act in, in a certain way. And you end up in situations where people are, are in jobs or in relationships that they don't want to be in um, and, and they feel, very very stuck so i think sometimes we have to be a little bit more selfish i think so, sometimes as well it's um i agree with you 100 i think i also think that sometimes people don't know what like it's something like i have huge experience with this i i didn't know what was me like i i, I didn't know what my opinion was or what because my entire life i'd fit for a multitude of reasons my entire life i had pushed you know whatever will make these people in this close vicinity like me is what I am and who I am and that's all I would be so I just did everything for everyone I um like never had a, an opinion that would go against what the, the group thought um and so I, when I'd grown up thinking that it was so hard for me to to know what was really my opinion and what you know what I actually wanted to do um and I think that's where counseling played a massive role for me and just starting to stand up and be like this is how i feel this is my this is what i think um was a huge thing but yeah just for people listening you know if you, if you are you it's, a, it's i completely resonate with if people are listening and they say they don't even know what it is they want um well i think i think that's where you know again we were speaking about um you putting things in place I think that's where it's your responsibility and I know it might be hard and it's shit and, and I'm not saying you have to rush or and maybe you can get help for it from people friends family whatever I think that's where it's like your responsibility to to, tr to try and figure it out because I think you know it can feel it can feel horrible and I know it really can um but if you do 
you just stop writing down your thoughts like in a journal or something and recognizing that that's not what you actually think but as soon as you've written it down you can realize that kind of stuff um you start voice noting to yourself on your phone whatever um you understand yourself so that then you can make the decisions that you want um to make your life better yeah and uh, i suppose one of the things to add to that in terms of that we all have our own responsibilities to i suppose like look after our own mental health but equally, I think there's a responsibility on us to support other people and whether that's as an employer, for example, or within a sporting organisation. But we we need to create those safe spaces and environments. And we also need to highlight that, like, for example, my job can be quite stressful and some of the things that, that we have to do and the people with the support and some of the stories that we have to hear um, can be really, really challenging. So we have... Um, I know within my team, there's I've got amazing support structures with with my like managers and the people around me, um, so that if something challenging does happen, that I can access that support straight away. And sometimes by acknowledging that you know, like jobs or, or work can be really shit at times, but I think by acknowledging that as opposed to just saying yeah it's shit, you just have to get on with it. By saying it's shit, but yeah we're gonna we're gonna support you you through it, um, it, it can make a a huge amount of difference because I think I suppose one of the, the greatest difficulties that we have in terms of the mental health crisis that we're having and across the UK and Ireland is that sometimes I think we maybe put too much onus on people having to, to reach out and having to speak up but then we don't give them anyone we don't give them the forums to speak up in we don't give them the the, the environments that, that they can be safe and feel safe in, in discussing those things. Um, I'm nodding. I'm nodding heavily for the people who are listening. But it's that's something I'm. I uh, yeah. I 100% feel. Um, and I, I think for, for for me specifically, I you know, my my day job, which I I don't like to associate with the podcast, I don't know where it is. But I work in eating disorders, and I think that um, and I being a man with eating disorder, I think um, you know, a lot of um, male mental health issues, especially around muscularity, which is something that I've experienced and I think a lot of people do experience, um, is intertwined with masculinity and you know the, the kind of odd society's hegemonic, you know, the ideal masculinity in our society is someone who is stoic, someone who is um, you know, doesn't doesn't seek out help and you know has to be manly in, in speech marks. To, to the fact that we're expecting those people who are so desperately trying to cling to some form of masculinity and um, through whatever means possible to then go completely against their fears and worries and just say yeah okay i'll go and seek out help and often to you know we were speaking off the podcast to um very feminized services especially in the eastern sort of world is like insane like it's ludicrous like it makes no it makes no sense that that would even be the case and I think it's probably the same as sport because sport is as such a, um, you know, maybe it's maybe it's starting to change and hopefully it is, but it has such a, you know, masculine energy of of the uh, you know the, again the kind of classic hegemonic idea of of like you know, pushing through pain and being able to you know, withstand stress and um, you know kind of dominating the the opposition and it's so much of that is, is around like don't feel anything if you do you push through it and then we're expecting them we're like oh why aren't the athletes reaching out why aren't they speaking about it more like it's we need more outreach 
Yeah, and if you look at it, recent times with like Naomi Osaka um, and, and those types of individuals who they've done exactly what I would be sort of encouraging people to do is if, if your mental health isn't in a good place that you take some time out and you look after yourself. And then you've got dickheads like Pierce Morgan who are just giving people abuse on on, on social media. Um, and you just think that that's like they're in is the problem like if you were to if we were we've talked about formulations if you were to try and like devise a, a formulation of the, the difficulties that we have in society there you go we've got someone who said i'm not in a good place i'm going to take a little bit of time out and then there's just an absolute pylon of of absolute arseholes um and i think because we're we're blessed with people like naomi osaka who they've got that platform where they're able to say, like, I, I think it, it seems, and, and I don't like sort of second guessing people in those sort of situations, but there was the situation where she she didn't want to do a press conference. Um, and for me, it was completely understandable. If I if I did something at work and I made a mistake, like I, I can't imagine someone being at the front door with a camera and a microphone and saying, Mark, let's let's have a discussion about like how things didn't go well today. It's just, it's just mad. And I know that there's, there's sponsors and there's all these obligations that people have, but I think we just need to be a bit more gentle with people. Um, and one of the things that we, I suppose we were really lucky was when they said they were going to find Naomi Osaka and she was in a position where that wasn't a major issue for her. Mm. Um, but within like tennis, for example, it's one of those sports where um, people think, oh, they're really, really wealthy. And, I've worked with a few tennis players who've basically said, unless you're in the top 100 um, tennis players in the world, it costs you a lot of money to play tennis. Yeah. Um, so that's where a lot of these athletes, they'll just sort of quit their teeth and, and do what they have to do. And they'll put their mental health second, uh, maybe not even second, maybe way further back um, because there's all of these other obligations that they just have to do. And it's just it's just really odd when, when you take a step back and, and you think about it. Um, but we need to protect people like Naomi Osaka and, and others who, who've been in similar positions who, who've come out and, and spoken about their mental health. Um, and I also think we then need to call out people who who try and give them abuse or who, who say that, oh, it's it's a sign of a sign of weakness um, to, to talk about those things, because it, it's really not. If anything, it's the exact opposite. Um, if you think of it like like a physical injury, like if you're if you're not 100 percent physically, um, um, so say for example you had like a stress fracture um, and then you think right well I'm going to go and play some football and then you end up you get a really really serious injury mm. um, you think you, what the person should have done was maybe taken a little bit of time out and it's it's the same with from the mental health side of things that you know prevention is better than the cure and, and early intervention as we would refer to it in mental health services um, is always better than than allowing things to to, to crack on um but i think with people like naomi osaka we've it seems like there's been a bit of a shift in the last sort of 12 to 18 months that people are starting to pay attention and they're actually having discussions about these at like at the olympics like it's it's the pinnacle of of, of sport um and the fact that they're having those discussions in, in those forums um and it's mainstream it's not like you know there's a few people talking about it it's like this is like headline all over the world um, I definitely think we're going in the right direction. Yeah, and I I agree, and I I kind of I, I kind of want to. There's a few things I want to touch on there, but I'm gonna 
um, go to other questions because I think this is going to come up later on in the podcast and I don't want to say everything I wanted to talk about then that there. Um, this is in true our discussion fashion. This is going to be by far the longest podcast I've ever done. Um, I hope you don't mind us going on for a bit longer. No, it's fine. I want to, I want to talk about um, a few more things with you. Uh, and we've, we've kind of touched on it. So, you know, I, I always send people kind of a few draft questions. And, and I wanted to ask you about, you know, why do you think it's difficult to get sport to prioritise mental health? And we've kind of talked about it a little bit and, you know, the, those kind of the egos and the, you know, all these kind of things that are in the way. Um, but I, I guess I, I kind of want to rephrase it slightly because you said something earlier that I think is interesting. Um, you mentioned how in it seems easier in women's sports uh, to men's sports to get them to prioritize mental health or at least get them to listen to you why do you think that is what do you think the difference is there well i suppose the first thing is women are more intelligent and that's scientifically <laughs> proven for a very very long time um it, it's a strange one because this idea of uh, things having to be sort of people being big and strong like that that's not isolated to just male sports because in, in female sports that that's that's exactly the same um in my experience i think a lot of it comes down it's a really broad way of looking at it the the athletes that i've been working with although they may have been like elite rugby players international like footballers olympians and things like that um they aren't paid in the same way so i think there's a lot it's a lot more obvious if, for example, someone has a physical health difficulty or a mental health difficulty, that the impact that that's going to have on that athlete there and then. Um, whereas if you think if someone's playing for Manchester United, for example, you know, like you, you play for Man United for a few years on a big contract, you don't need to, to work again. Whereas if you're playing for Manchester United women's team, for example, you know, like that you're not going to earn enough money there to, to like do you for the rest of your life. Um, so I think it's a lot more obvious in, in those sort of situations where if, if someone does have a, a, a difficulty that they're they're more, I think they're maybe aware of their own weaknesses as such. Um, and I don't mean, I, I suppose it's, I don't mean that just with females. I just mean because of the sort of the financial side of things that um, you, you see it in, in Ireland, for example, within like Gaelic games, like those athletes are completely amateur in the sense that they don't get paid. But they would like they're elite athletes. It's it's crazy if you get a chance to look up Gaelic football or or, um, or hurling. Um, but when something goes wrong, it, it's obvious that like these guys um, and, and ladies, they're gonna need support and they're gonna need it quickly because they have their normal day jobs to to go to as well. Um, but I, I I suppose I I don't really know what it is about female sports where where they are more receptive. Um, I suppose. I do, I do you think? I do you think there must be. A part of it must be the fact that it is um, like you know there are less people watching and there's less kind of money behind it. Just just because I think you know often what happens, but that there's actually it's not necessarily that either because um, it's difficult. One. Maybe maybe that maybe it is the case. I'm oh, sorry, I'm, I'm not even making sense here. What I was going to say was that if if the sport is um, less watched. Um, then, you know, if the athlete is going to take time off, there's less people. Less people are going to be kind of concerned about it, or there's less money lost, or there's less, you know, whatever reason. The same way, I think, you know, if, um, you know, for example, with Simone Biles, and we, well, I 
probably talk a bit about her later on because she's such a, a famous Uber athlete. When she takes some time off for her mental health, it's like headline news because she's famous. And therefore, there's more people who are going to read about it. And therefore, there's a higher likelihood of more knobheads reading about it and then saying horrible things and doing horrible stuff. Um, so maybe there is something with that, just the fact that there's, there's more people who are hearing about it. Um, and therefore, there's, there's less risk for a sports club um, of a women's team to take on something new and people hear about it and then there might be less backlash. Um, I don't know, I'm completely pulling this out no, my I, so I don't know if you I agree. I think that's a good point in that um, maybe there's a there's a window and women's sports are just absolutely blowing up at, at the minute and I know mm. I work closely with the, the Women's Sports Alliance as well. Um, but it, it just seems that maybe these organisations are just a little bit more creative. Um, but they, it's not even like the responsive support or the reactive support. So it's not a case of, right, We've got an athlete, for example, a female athlete who is struggling with her, her with low mood or anxiety. Let's get support. They seem to be more like proactive and, and more receptive to like a lot of the work that, that I've been doing in that like you come in and you do like the um, the workshops, the training sessions, upskilling people. Um, but I, I don't know. It just to me, it just seems that their environments are, are safer. Um, and and I, I don't know why that is. Um, and maybe that's because I'm a bloke. Um, <laughs> I mean, but yeah, maybe maybe it is the fact that, and you know, and rightfully so, women's sport is kind of is is becoming uh, more and more famous now and doing better and better, and that that's amazing. Um, but I think may, maybe the fact that because it was lower, um, there was less less people watching and kind of um, you know, less backing. That was a an environment that. Um, pushed more creativity and more kind of experimentation and taking on these new ideas. Cause I think there's a lot of fear in the, in you know sports that have a lot of money behind it and a lot of fans behind it of like, okay, yeah, you're telling us to prioritize athlete mental health, but what if our athletes turn shit because of it? Like what if, what if things go wrong? Like this is, this is how we've always done it. It's been working okay. So we're scared to move on. Whereas maybe if you know, there are less, there's less kind of, pressure from money and from sponsors and stuff maybe you're more likely to say let's try this yeah no and i think i think you've maybe hit the nail on the head in that it takes if you look at the premier league for example it takes someone like a jose Mourinho coming in for things to change it takes someone who's who takes a huge risk and then it pays off and then everyone copies them um and it'll take, so I've noticed in the last couple of weeks, Tottenham Hotspur and Burnley have both um, put ads out to employ clinical psychologists. And I think this is this is the start of it. Um, whereas I think there are there are women's sporting organisations out there who've been doing that for quite a long time. Um, but I think at, at the, the elite like male level, it's a case of, well, unless Man United do it, we're, we're not going to, to do it. We have to we have to see it work elsewhere. Um, but I definitely think we're, we're going in the right direction. What, what are your thoughts on, because I kind of have a, I have my, I almost have like a, a an argument prepared for when people say like, you know, why do you think it's important to, to be supporting athlete mental health? Um, and and I, I guess I'm, I'm going to kind of, um, into what my dad's advocate 
question. But you know what? Fuck it. The devil's advocate question is going to be now. So we're going to do it now and then we'll It's the devil's advocate. <laughs> Don't you think that prioritizing mental health in sport will result in less, uh, less effort from athletes? So, for example, missing training and missing competitions like Simone Biles did, and therefore worse athletes. Like if we're going to prioritize their mental health, isn't that just going to make them worse? I think it's an interesting one in terms of how, you, how you've sort of phrased it because you, you've said less effort mm. by like missing training and not competing. But I, I wouldn't quantify those two things as the same. So less effort for me is not putting 100% into something. Um, but taking time off to, to rest, that, that's very, very different. Um, and I think what's probably happening already, and I've seen it in, in the athletes that I've been working with and the organizations I've worked with, when people's mental health isn't in a great place, they aren't physically able to put that in. Now, I know we hear of some amazing individual athletes who have have succeeded in spite of the fact that they've had serious mental illness. Um, but my argument would always be, well, imagine if we had have got them the support that they required then there's scope for them to have been even more successful or to be performing at an even at an even higher level. Um, and one of the things, and I suppose this is the difference between what I do and what, for example, a, a sports psychologist might do. Um, if we think of like Maslow's hierarchy of need, I think when we think of mental health, it's it's a lot closer to the bottom. And unless we've got those things, can you explain of, what Maslow's hierarchy needs are? So Maslow's hierarchy of need is it's basically this idea that in order to reach, I think at the top, it's self-actualization, which very few people get to, you have to have a really stable base. And the stable base is things like food, shelter, um, and it, it, it gradually works its way up. Um, and my argument has always been if, if someone is really struggling with depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, then how can we expect self-actualization? Um, and I think that's in terms of the, the question that you've asked, if we give people the opportunity and it may be that they need to take time away from sport, um, or it may be that it, it just in addition to what they're doing in terms of like their training regimes and, and they're, they're competing, that we add something into it. So we're not necessarily impacting upon, upon their, their normal routine as such, then we can hopefully improve their mental health and then ultimately improve their their performance um like on on the pitch um as such but yeah i don't i don't think we're going to end up in a situation where we're going to have worse athletes because they're they're taking time off um to 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 look after their their mental health yeah i, I kind of i've kind of tried I, I, I psyched myself up before this podcast that when we did the devil's advocate, I would maintain it for a while and keep kind of keep being the devil's advocate. But you put that so nicely. And it's so hard because it's always, I, I always, I always disagree with my questions. So it's really hard for me to keep disagreeing. Um, but yeah, I, so I've, I've, I've lost it. Um, so yeah, I, I agree 100%. I think one thing you touched on that I really like, and it's something my, my background is I did my master's degree in sports nutrition and I, I used to coach um, powerlifters and, and like strongmen and, and people like that. And um, 
I think one thing has always been always frustrated me is when you try and change the way someone's doing something in their training or in their um, nutrition, they would always say, oh, but it's always works like it, it works this way. Um, but that doesn't mean it could work better. Like it couldn't, sorry, it couldn't work better. So, you know, having athletes push through their mental health struggles and eventually just like you have a breakdown and it be horrible is, has been somewhat successful you know as a, a horrible thing to say but it, you know they have been yeah you know, it's been it's been working to some degree um but that doesn't mean that if we start prioritizing mental health and just make that change it isn't going to be even better and i would argue that there's it makes so much sense that it would be even better because they're going to put so much more um what's the word they use like um intentional practice something like that they, they're using the kind of the ten thousand hour rule like you know practicing in a way that's focused and not just kind of methodical just kind of ignoring whatever's going on because they're more relaxed and more kind of mentally stable they're going to be able to put more effort in and think about what they're doing and focus um, and i think as, as well as that i've been talking for a long time now, i apologize but um you know one of my kind of areas that i'm really interested in is the kind of exercise addiction and and, and, and the kind of disordered eating, I think, you know, if we can get athletes to, to have a, be in an environment where they can work on their mental health and reduce those things, also just from a periodization standpoint, you know, your, your athletes aren't going to keep trying to do more and more and more and burn out. Instead, you're going to be able to properly periodize them and get them to follow, you know, a scientifically backed protocol to, because they're going to be more stable to be able to, to adhere to that. Um, so I just think it's a win-win. Yeah, and I think one of the things you touched upon is the evidence bases as well. Um, and I think like sports science, nutrition, there's huge amounts of, of growing evidence bases for those things. But in my experience, there are still a lot of coaches working on like anecdotal evidence. Um, like you said, oh, it, I've, this is how we've always done it or this is how that coach does it as opposed to looking at the, the individual athlete. And I think... Um, and I, I don't want to tar all coaches with the same brush because like 99.9% .9 of coaches are absolutely amazing, but there, there will be the small amount of coaches who will like almost live vicariously through their, their athletes. Um, and I suppose you've seen it with these scandals in America where there's just been like the abuse of athletes. Um, and there's, I suppose there's the physical and, and sexual abuse, but there was the emotional abuse as well of, of these athletes who, were just put under so much pressure by their coaches and they didn't have the opportunity to they didn't have that safe space to say i'm tired um i, I need some time off and and it's not necessarily saying right i'm going to go and take six weeks off it might just be you know the session needs to be a little bit shorter or or things just need to be tweaked and, and, and moved around um, but hopefully with the sports science side of things as it's just like blossoming at the minute that we can start to see more and more evidence bases around how, how we look after athletes, how we support them to recover both physically and, and from a mental health side of things. And ultimately we'll have, I suppose, more rounded people, better, better athletes, better coaches, all, all that side of things. How do you think what it kind of in an ideal world, um, how do you think mental health should be approached in sport? Like how, how do we actually 
things into practice? I think looking at organisations or clubs like, like your Burnleys, your, your Tottenham's, um, in, in America, in the NBA, for example, there's they've brought this rule in where you have to have a, a certain amount of designated mental health professionals in a team. Uh, so in the NBA, and this is maybe three, four years ago, they brought this in where they had to have a psychiatrist on retainer um, and they had to have, I think, at least two full-time mental health professionals um, th- throughout the, the, the season and, and the off-season. Um, and, I, and I think it's it, that's where we need to, to look at. It's the same with like physios. Like There was a time when we didn't have physios in, in, in football clubs and, and sporting mm-hmm. organisations, and now like you, you can't go and watch your local pub team play without there being a physio present. Um, and I think that's what we need to do. We need to look at... Um, I suppose the ideal scenario for me would be that there would be a mental health professional embedded in every single sports club and organization um, in, in the country, right from grassroots level up, up to elite level. But I know that's, that's very much blue sky thinking and it's not going to happen overnight. Um, but there are things that, that organizations are doing, like having um, mental health first aiders in, in their organizations um, and having like regular like, mental health awareness workshops um, but I think, I suppose one of the things with mental health awareness, I think it's great, but I always use the analogy, if your house was on fire, would you like me to make you aware of it or would you like me to do something about it? Um, and, and I think we we need to like move beyond awareness a little bit. Um, and we're starting to see it with these Premier League clubs who are saying, right, yeah, maybe these people who've been sending us all these emails are onto something. Um and, and let's look at doing something. I think one thing that's important is that we don't focus specifically on like one type of mental health professional. And there is this idea that it has to be a psychologist or it has to be a psychiatrist. And I think clubs are, are maybe doing themselves a disservice in terms of maybe they need to open it up a bit wider and look at occupational therapists, mental health nurses and social workers, uh, th- those types of things so that they're bringing people in with a, a a really vast array of of skills and, and backgrounds and, and, and expertise as such um, but i do think it is it's about we just have to talk talk and talk about it we have to create an environment where people feel comfortable but we also have to create environments where where they have access to people so that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a mental health professional there 24 hours a day that a player or an athlete can go and speak to but at least having someone there who can say right well I know who we can speak to. I know who we can contact and focus a lot more on the proactive side of things rather than the, the reactive. Like, um, I think sometimes we wait until people are really, really unwell um, before we actually do anything. And I think if we, if we focused a lot more on, on the prevention, then I think we'd be in a much better position. Yeah. And I think, I think that takes away from that. Um, I think there's a lot of fear from you know, like like you were saying when you asked the question you know do you think your mental health stuff is in place and it's a loaded question because if they say no they feel like oh I've, I've, you know, there's some kind of negative attachment to that but i think sport organizations and clubs and whatever you you, you, you don't even if you don't have the resources or you just or for whatever reason you can't you're not going to do to the point where you're going to have a mental health professional involved you know you can you can always do the proactive stuff. You can at least create create an environment where people, or just you're just having someone that they can come forward to and speak about and and talk about things. And 
um you just not not push this this ideology of um if you if you're sore or like both physically um you know, if both for physical and mental issues you know if you're sore or injured or whatever that you have to push through it in the same way you should you shouldn't be if you're down or stressed or anxious you shouldn't have to hide that from your coach or from your um from your teammates it should be that it should they should feel comfortable speaking about it and that can even be you know, if you are the coach or you are um someone high up that can be you talking about it and it can be as little as just saying actually i'm stressed right now because you know there's this game's coming up and i've got these pressures as i'm doing this instead of just trying to be stoic and for some reason thinking that that's going to make you more you know, have more respect from people like it's it's yeah i think i think i think it need that should be the way we look at it instead you know or at least in my opinion i think an easier way to get some of these clubs to take it on is to, is to say, you know, we're not putting the pressure on you to fix people. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is, is you need to make it that people understand that, that they can come out because, and I think, I, I think the people often hide behind the vise of, um, you know, society is, is more mental health friendly now. And, you know, we put tweets out about mental health so they know we can, we can do stuff, but that's, you know, the habitus or the you know the the values within the social circle of the sport or of the team or of the organization is so different to society and it impacts people in that way because you're ingrained in it you're encompassed in it you need to focus on changing the environment within your organization not just thinking because on twitter everyone's saying it's great that that means that an, an athlete will feel like it, that applies to them yeah, definitely. And maybe maybe you've touched upon something as well as some of these elite organizations are are quite detached from I suppose the the rest of society and that they're they're quite intrinsic and particularly if they're successful, that let's say would why why would we why would we risk changing anything? Um but yeah, so a lot of the work I've been doing as well is about like supporting um say physios or sports therapists in terms of upskilling them so they can highlight if there are concerns about someone's mental health and then they can ask those questions you know are, are you okay um or supporting them to be able to signpost um to relevant organizations because within football for example if, if you've signed a professional contract in like the football league that like you can access like sporting chance or, or the pfa um, those types of things so the, the structures are there but to me it still feels a, a bit reactive um and there's a big focus on like i said these awareness sessions that the clubs get offered from lots of different organizations um so there's the awareness and then there's the oh someone's really unwell let's try and get them some help but there seems to be, it's that gap in the middle um in terms of those sort of structures and, and protocols that that might prevent someone from becoming quite unwell what do you th- what do you think should fill that gap? Like, do you think it's that the, uh, should athletes be attending like mental health workshops? Or- I, I think I think that, that that's part of it. I, I I think sometimes we put too much on the athlete, though. Sometimes I think there there should be um like the the organisation and I'll, I'll football in in England, for example. Um, the PFA get a lot of criticism about their what they do and what they don't do, but it's a really strange one in that the PFA is effectively the trade union for professional footballers. Now, if I was struggling with a mental health problem that um, 
and I was in an employment till like NHS. I don't go to my trade union for, for support or my representative body for support. I, I go to my employer. And I think sometimes the clubs have maybe been quite happy for the PFA to take all of the flack. Oh, because it's the PFA that, that provide this support. But in fact, maybe maybe the clubs need to be need to be doing that as well. Um, what I think the PFA should be doing is is pushing clubs to have like a, a set of standards that that they all sign up to, that they all agree to, which involves you know, regular education for all of their their staff, um, whether that's playing staff or not. Then um, regular, like proactive support for all their players, and that could be simple things like you know, um, intermittent sort of welfare checks. And that doesn't mean you have to sit down for two or three hours with a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. It could be that, you know, once a month. Um, and I know that there are some, some clubs who do this. There's some clubs who've got like daily check-ins or weekly check-ins, um, but there doesn't seem to be like a consistent sort of um, process or protocol in place across all of these organizations. And I think maybe if the PFA really pushed that, like if you think in rugby, for example, like the head injury protocol, like that's something that like every, everyone knows. Um, and if they can do things like that, there's no reason that they, they can't roll out like a mental health protocol. Um, it, it wouldn't have huge cost implications. And this is the thing, the amount of staff in a lot of these organizations, it's not a case of like, let's get more. It's well, you use what you have already. Um, and I, I think that, that that could be absolutely, absolutely massive. But I think sometimes it comes back to cost and these clubs might think, oh, but someone else is sorting it. So we, we don't have to have to do anything. Um, but we're hoping now that with these organizations and clubs that we're working with over the next um the next few months, that maybe other clubs will start to see, oh well if, if that club can do it, um why why can't we? Do you do you do any like with the work that you do, do you have any like measurable, do you do like a you measure like before and afters of of things? So with, with myself with the work I do, um a lot of that's quite, um, I suppose it's based on like narrative assessments and it's quite subjective. But I know with some of the clubs that I, I've been in discussions with and some of the individuals who, who work within these organisations, some of them have like um, qu- like quantifiable um, sort of welfare checks. Um, and some of them are, are really simple, like maybe on a scale of like not to five, you know, people have to rate their, their mood or, or how they feel on, on that particular day. Um, and if so, one of the uh, one of the individuals I I was chatting with who works for a club in the, the championship, and they said that if the, their process is if someone scores themselves at like a two or lower, um, like two or three days in a row, that then triggers like a chat with with someone from from the welfare team, um, which I think that's brilliant because that's not been a hugely like costly measure because they're using the, the staff and the resources that that they've already got it was a similar it was a similar thing when i was at um, durham uni i did some um volunteering with their snc team for their rugby uni rugby team and they had a they had literally a like an excel spreadsheet there was like a well-being thing and it just had like the equations in there and they just ranked how they were feeling on a scale of one to ten over no, numerous questions and if you know if if it's scored low, then it kind of flare, it kind of you know, lit them up for the coach, and then the coach knew to you know, just check on them and say see how they are. And that's that's no cost. Like you've got Excel, it's just you know a bit of time to set that up and, and send out the link to everyone. 
Um, yeah, and there are there are lots of tools out there, and um, like there are you can do like um, anxiety and depression like scales that they're freely available online now. They, um, I suppose historically they would have been used from a, a diagnostic um, sort of side of things, and I suppose you have to be really careful because we don't want a situation where people are diagnosing their athletes with depression or anxiety or things like that. But I definitely think like a simple, a simple scale and, and by doing something like that. So say, for example, you join an academy when you're really young and then every day for the next 10 years, someone's asking you about your welfare. Then by the time you're an adult, like it's not this isn't new. And like I know when I was at school, like no one asked me about my mental health. Um, and, and that's not a criticism of the school I went to. That was just a sign of the times. Um, and. I, I think by introducing those little measures, um, I think I like to think that like they're all like little jigsaw pieces and you just need to start pulling all of these different things together. And then you end up in a situation where you've got a really safe environment for, for your athletes, for your staff, for your coaches who will feel confident and comfortable in saying to someone there, I'm, I'm struggling or things aren't right or I think I need a little bit of help a little bit of support um and then hopefully they would have the they would have an environment where they would know who to who to go to who to speak to whether that's someone within the club or whether um, I know there's been suggestions for example with the PFA that they would have they would employ like regional mental health professionals so there would be a couple would be based say for example in the northeast um, and they would cover like all the clubs there. There would be some in Manchester, London, wherever. So that it might not necessarily be someone within the club, but it's someone who everyone in the club will know. Ah, oh, George is the the mental health professional for like the Greater Manchester area. We've got an athlete who's we're a bit concerned about. Let's let's get George on the phone and, and then get get some advice and, and see what we can do. Um, and I think particularly when I go back to the Premier League a lot, like there's there's an awful lot of money in the Premier League. It's it's it, it, it's not going to cost these clubs a, a huge amount of money. Yeah, um, yeah, I think we touched on some really good stuff there, and I, and I kind of um, I'm conscious that the time is kind of going on, but yeah, I, I I agree with what you said, and I think um, it is just these little changes that I think need to need to take place, and I think I think you know, if we can start having some kind of um, I I just I I. I don't think there's anything out there or anyone's done a like before and after of, you know, this, you know, this is what athletes, how athletes were performing before we implemented these mental health things. And this is how they're performing now and how they feel. Um, I think that can, that could be a huge thing for clubs like the ones that you're working with to have, um, you know, just, just to put out there and, and hopefully even just, just the, like you said, even just the clubs working with you will hopefully have a, have an impact but I think yeah some kind of measurable thing would also be really cool um but Mark thank thank you so much for for doing the pod um we we started off shaky with someone flushing the toilet and me having a brain fart because of it but I think we touched on some amazing stuff and um I really hope people at home enjoyed um I ask three questions to everyone who comes on this podcast and I know you are a listener so I'm sure you you know these questions um are you ready for the first one yes <laughs> okay question one is name a person real or fictional who inspires you 
so I've, I've cheated a little bit with this one because I've sort of like split it in two and I've got like loads of people. But I think the, the obvious ones would be like my parents and, and my wife who they've always been like incredibly supportive and like there's that like unconditional positive regard. Um, but also they're really good at calling me out on my bullshit. Um, and I, I think that that's really important. But um, I think it was something that we touched on just before we, we started the pod about it's not so much a person it's more of like character traits for people who who've maybe experienced difficulties in terms of their mental health who've then decided to turn that into something positive and I would include like people like yourself in that who've you've been really open about the difficulties that that you've experienced and then you've uh, I said it earlier to you use your superpowers for good um and, and try and try and try and help other people and there's I know we we spoke briefly earlier about um like Tom Holm who who set up blokes um and Tom again he's been really open about the difficulties that he's had with anxiety and depression and he's created this forum to support men to talk about their mental health so it's like those those traits and individuals who are willing to sort of be really open for that sort of like for the greater good for 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 helping for helping others and there, there's something we say it's one of the reasons that therapy groups exist is that there's something really reassuring to people when you find out that you're not the only one and when someone else has the similar experience um so yeah like i said people like like yourself and, and tom and others who, who use their superpowers for good oh, well thank you that's very kind of you and i agree tom is amazing and blokes is fantastic as well and then we tell you like we like you said we spoke off the pod about it but they've made um BMATs with phrases like you know to, to chat over a pint and stuff and I just think that's that's so good in a in you know a world where I think you know especially in the Ethan Swords I talked about I think there's so much kind of feminization around stuff. I think to have something that's you know the blokes as the name is put I think is really really important and and yeah really good thing. Um so number two is a phase of your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking back, you know positives came from it. I suppose you could be really like cheesy and philosophical with this one and just think you could say like everything, because I suppose, and I touched upon it earlier, like we're a sum total of our experiences. So everything that we've gone through um, has sort of led us to, to like to be here and now. But I think in terms of, I, I suppose I touched upon it earlier, those early days with, with the Willowgrove consultants and, and trying to get it up and running and those thousands of emails and messages that were sent without any response. And um, and even there was occasions on social media where people were were messaging me or, or like t- replying to tweets suggesting that I didn't know what I was talking about or that I wasn't qualified to support people with mental health problems. Um, I had a bit of a pylon with a, there was a few people who, who sent me a lot of messages um, saying that I, I was talking out of my arse um which was like it was horrible really um and at that point it was like oh i'll just i'll stop i'll, I'll not go on with it but i had sort of good people around me who said you know just leave it just keep doing what you're doing um uh, but yeah so i think i i think that one in particular because i suppose you learn a lot from because social media particularly twitter is an absolute cesspit um and, and i suppose there's lots of things that I've learned from those experiences. Yeah, and I, yeah, um, I think I remember you telling me about that last time we spoke. And I think, um, yeah, people, 
it's it's when whenever I think like you say, Twitter is a cesspool and all social media is, and I think whenever you you try and do something in the world that's going to have an impact, like you are, um, you're always going to get people who are going to try and question you and try and belittle what you're doing for reasons I do not know. You know, maybe, maybe some of them genuinely are concerned for whatever reason, and you know, fair play. But I mean, you do it in a in a nicer nicer fashion at least and kind of have a discussion with someone rather than just berating them because that's just stupid and egotistical and um kind of just counterintuitive um but i think you know, you you come with with obviously an extensive amount of knowledge and you're doing it out of your kindness and um you're wanting to make an impact so i don't think that can ever be a bad thing um so yeah i think i think it's yeah and hopefully for people listening at home you know, to know that someone with the experience and kind of knowledge that you have, and even you, know, you have people who who try and stop you and try and tell you that you're not good enough. I think that's a, a good thing for people to hear and and know that you know, that is always going to happen. And you, you know, fuck those people <laughs> for want of a better word. Definitely. Um, so yeah, um, just keep keep doing what you're doing. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and I also really liked your your first answer because I think the kind of philosophical side of it of you know we i think we we often live in in our um but we we think about the potential of the future rather than where we actually are it's so so rare that you actually live in the moment and we're constantly anxious about what's going to happen next so we always feel like where we are is shit that you don't like you don't like it because you think it could be better um so i suppose in a, in a lot of ways you yeah you're always everything's always not as good as it could have been because you're you're trying to get where you are and Looking back, you now know that there's actually a lot of positives back there. Anyway, and waffling on, and in a in a subject that I know know near enough about to, to discuss. Um, <laughs> final one, question three: um, a phrase to live by. Be compassionate in everything you do. I love that. I love that. So I think it, it can be really, really easy to in, in, in any sort of lane of work or, or just in life in general to I suppose to switch that compassion off but I think I suppose in my experience because I have spent the last 11 12 years working with people who I suppose it's, it's one of the, the most amazing things about working in mental health settings is that the people that you're working with they're particularly when I was working in secure hospitals and inpatient settings, that was probably the worst that they'd ever felt about themselves for, for a lot of them. Um, and then you you do everything you can to support them to, to improve things. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I've seen in my career is it's not the, the medication that makes people better. It's not the interventions that makes people better. It's the kindness and the love and compassion that, that you show to them. That's what people remember. Like if you go to your GP, you, you don't remember what medication he prescribes or what he suggests to do. You remember like, was he or she nice and pleasant and kind and, um, and it's it's that whole thing it's about how, how we're treated and i think if we all did that the world would probably be a slightly better place um and it's quite easy to do you just have to think right what what is it about what i'm saying or doing that that's going to impact people and 
is it going to upset them? Is it going to distress them? Is there a better way I can put this? Is there a better way I can approach it? Um, and just being a bit self-aware, really, of, of how your actions impact other people because you don't know what other people are going through. Yeah, and that, that is so important that, you know, um, we're all the main character of our own stories. And I think sometimes we can fall victim to thinking upon your, your own your tiredness or frustration or stress um, ahead of whatever everyone else might be experiencing. And like you say, yeah, I think, I think treat, yeah, treat everyone with compassion is just is a perfect thing and just do compassion with everything you do. I think it's a great phrase. Um, and yeah, that's the, the end of the pod. Mark, um, thank you so much for coming on. I hope you enjoyed. Yeah, definitely. Good, good. Um, everyone listening at home, as always, thank you so much for listening all the way through. And I hope to see you at the next one. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out MayaMinds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there and we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.